Smartcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. This is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, the podcast where we speak to all kinds of entrepreneurs and creators doing amazing things in business and beyond. Listeners can now support the continued growth of the show thanks to our friends at Glow. The whole thing takes about 60 seconds. If you're interested, go to glow.fm slash e2. That's glow.fm slash e2. This episode is brought to you by Unbound Merino. Unbound offers the highest quality antibacterial and odor-resistant merino wool clothing that helps you pack light when you travel, save money, and enjoy the comfort of incredible merino wool t-shirts, hoodies, and more. Visit unboundmerino.com. That's unboundmerino.com. Pack less, experience more. Today, we are speaking with the CEO of COOs, so to speak, Cameron Harold. Cameron has been an entrepreneur since day one. At age 21, he had 14 employees. By 35, he'd helped build his first two $100 million companies. By the age of 42, Cameron engineered 1-800-GOT-JUNK's spectacular growth from two to $106 million in revenue and 3,100 employees. And he did that in just six years. His companies have landed him over 5,200 media placements in that same period, including coverage on Oprah. He now is the head of the COO Alliance, the largest network for the second in command. And in this great conversation with Cameron, we dive into the differences in personality traits with respect to CEOs and COOs, leadership topics such as conflict management, getting to inbox zero, and investing in your team, why meetings are often unproductive, and how to calculate the true cost of running a meeting, the real stressors that founder CEOs deal with behind the scenes, and so much more. So without delay, hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. Here is... Cameron Harold. We won't spend too much time on your entrepreneurial story because we covered just about everything in episode 11, which is uh, was way back uh, in early 2018. And listeners can go back if they're interested in the backstory. So today we're going to start with um, more about the COO Alliance, first of all, uh, which I think is the largest network for the second in command. What is the origin story here and, and how's it going at the COO Alliance? 
Yeah, so the um, I guess the origin story of the CEO Alliance was that I have always um, attended events for CEOs. You know, over the years, being a part of the entrepreneurs organization and going to events for YPO and for EO and Vistage and Genius Network and Maverick and you know all these amazing mastermind talks, amazing groups for entrepreneurs. And I realized that that was a great spot for the CEO to be, but really a terrible spot for the second in command. Hmm. Um, you know, the, the entrepreneurs tend to fly at the 30,000 foot level. They hyperlink from idea to idea. They stay very, fairly strategic, um, fairly thematic. Whereas the second in command, the COOs tend to really want to get into the details a lot more. So I wanted to create a space that was for them where they could really get into the details more um, and really kind of talk through the actual systems and processes and, um, you know, how to actually grow the company versus the themes. What is the main difference between the role of a CEO and the role of a COO? Sure. The CEO's role is really to be the founder of, or the, the caretaker of vision, um, culture and strategy. The COO's role is really to focus on operations and execution and growth, uh, really to put all of the systems and processes and people in place to be able to scale. And the CEO's job is to really be pointing the direction and making sure that things like culture and the board and legal are all taken care of. So the, the CEO, and the COO's job tends to be to make the CEO iconic as well. For any of the founder-led mm -hmm. brands, the COO's job is really to make the CEO iconic. Do you often draw on your experience as a COO from 1-800-GOT-JUNK and your relationship with, with Brian and the background there? Oh, sure. I mean, considering that, that you know, he and I really supercharged that mm -hmm. company together, right? Where we were really that two in a box. Um, and we took them. I, when I joined, I was the 14th employee. And when I left six and a half years later, we had 3,100 employees system-wide. Um, and we really did operate at, as that two in a box where Brian was kind of culture and vision strategy. And then I focused on operations, execution, the call center, sales, uh, marketing, PR, you know, building out all the divisions of the company. So obviously you've had a ton of time to observe the profiles of both CEOs and COOs reflecting on, on your own experience, but also through the COO Alliance. What in your opinion are the key character traits that make for a good CEO and by the same token, make for an excellent COO? Yeah, very different personality traits. Actually, the CEOs tend to be quick starts. They tend to um, execute now plan later. Uh, they tend to be very strategic and visionary and leaning outside of the box, whereas the COOs tend to be focused a little bit more on the day-to-day -day and more of the current state. So let's say the COOs were really focused on the one-year plan. The CEOs are really often focused on things three years out. CEOs tend to be much more gregarious, much more, you know, winging it, shooting from the hip, making it up as they go, entrepreneurial. And the COOs tend to be much more analytical, amiable. Um, tend to be more focused on putting the systems and processes, maybe asking more questions, figuring out how to do it, and the CEOs are figuring out where to go. Do you feel like you've had to shift your own personality in, in this way? I mean, you started as a COO, or at least that's your, your background as an entrepreneur, and now you're sort of at the forefront of running this organization, and you're doing speaking, and you're, you're writing. Uh, you're obviously active on social. I'm a bit of an anomaly, actually, um, an anomaly because I've operated as an entrepreneur. You know, I, I was running my own companies when I was uh, 21 years old. I had 12 full-time employees already. So, at, you know, at a very young age, I was already in the entrepreneurial sphere. 
Um, and then I've operated a few times as the second in command. So I'm probably a bit of an anomaly that I, I think and operate very entrepreneurially, but I have a lot of the, the, the COO traits, the operation traits, largely because I was really groomed that way from a company called College Pro Painters when I was in my 20s. And then now that I'm more entrepreneur again, you know, in, in building up my business and, you know, running with books and speaking and coaching, and then even starting the company, the CEO Alliance, I'm operating more as that CEO again, but I'm, my peer group has really um, stratified into two groups. One is, you know, I spend a lot of time at different mastermind groups with CEOs. And then the group that I run is for COOs. So I'm really kind of in that group. I think I probably more affiliate with the entrepreneur is probably my more, my natural group that I um, probably fit in better. Even my personality profiles would put me in the entrepreneur world. But mm -hmm. I think I think more like an operator, which is very different from the way most entrepreneurs think. In your coaching practice, do you have people that are coming to you and asking you, Cameron, if their personality and or background would be better suited for CEO or, or COO? And do you help them uncover that? Um, yes and no. But more often than not, the COOs know that they're not meant to be the CEO. Uh, most most COOs don't even have aspirations to be a CEO. You know, they're quite they're quite fine with just being um, in that second in command role and helping the CEO to build their company. You know, most of them really don't have aspirations to be an entrepreneur. And just like most entrepreneurs could never imagine themselves working for anybody else. Mm -hmm. OK, so with respect to CEOs, you've you've mentioned that good leaders are often very good at investing in personal and professional growth. But on the flip side, not great at investing in the professional growth of their employees and or team. Um, can you expand on that? Yeah, it's interesting. Like I was even coaching a CEO, someone I've been coaching for six years now. Um, he's taken his company from about 40 employees up to 750 employees. And about a year or so ago, he was about the 400 employee mark. I taught him a lesson. He's like, oh, this is awesome. This is totally going to change my business. And it was really around email management, I think is what it was. And I, I really showed him how to really, really manage, you know, the 150 emails a day to have inbox zero every single day. Um, and he thought it would be game changing for him. And I said, no, what would be game changing is if you taught that to all 400 employees. And I think often the entrepreneur is so myopic in their world of, you know, them and that, that radical self-reliance that they often forget about growing the rest of their team, you know, so they're good at getting involved in masterminds like YPO or Vistage or, you know, Genius Network, but they forget to grow the rest of their team. Um, and then they'll, you know, a marketer will say, hey, can I go to this marketing conference? It's almost like an afterthought, right? Or the, the CFO wants to join, you know, a group of CFOs and it's almost like an afterthought. My belief has always been that the more you grow your people, the more they'll grow your brand. Right. So if I can grow the capacity and the confidence of my employees, the more they'll really focus on growing the company for me. So I think that strategy makes a lot of sense. And if leaders are, are saying, yeah, I agree with you, Cameron, but I wouldn't know where to invest. Like I'm, I'm on board with the idea of investing in my people, but how would I figure out where to invest in the growth of this team? Yeah, more often than not, the leaders tend to focus on what we do. You know, they train people on the day to day of the company or the day to day, you know, the role that they're working on. What I like them to do is train people more on the soft skills leadership. So if I had to kind of take that up a level, I would think about let me just kind of rattle off a bunch of areas you could train your managers in. It would be things like conflict management, 
coaching, delegation, time management, email management, project management, um, one-on-one meetings, you know, running effective meetings, classroom teaching, um, situational leadership, you know, all the soft skills, problem solving, all the soft skills of leadership. It's really training your team and making sure not only that they're trained, but that their competency gets to a very high level in each of those skills and that maybe they're even certified in those skills so they can train others in the organization. So you build almost a viral learning approach inside your organization where you train people on the soft skills of leadership. And that's when when you do that, then you've trained these people to be more effective, more efficient, um, to be able to replicate themselves. You know, that's when your business really goes to the next level. And let me give you another specific example that I think is a really good one. Okay. Any company, any company out there that has a management team, right? If you've got managers or leaders, those people are typically involved in doing interviews, right? They interview other people. But how many of those people have ever been trained on interviewing? Almost none. So here they are doing interviews and hiring people in your company and they have no idea what they're doing. Or how many people run meetings? You know, almost everybody runs a meeting at some point. Every manager runs multiple meetings a week. But most managers have never had any training on how to run meetings, let alone how to attend them and participate in them. So here you've got kind of the blind leading the blind. Mm -hmm. This dovetails neatly into something I had tabled for later on, but I'll ask you about it now. For those that don't understand how much meetings are costing them, this is a cool little tool and or framework that you've taught. And there are some videos on LinkedIn that people can check out. But how do you explain it for those that want to quickly figure that out? Yeah. So let's say that the average employee, you know, earns $50,000 a year, which is actually low, right? The $50,000 a year is actually low. Um, when you include like all the payroll taxes and benefits and the management costs, it's probably more like 80,000, but let's call it 50,000 a year. The average employee, the average employee also spends about one hour a day in meetings or on phone calls or on video calls, which are effectively meetings, right? Um, And if they've never had any training on that, they're spending one eighth of their time doing something that they have no idea how to do. Um, And that that creates this butterfly effect or a ripple effect on the rest of the organization, customers and suppliers. So if you're paying $50,000 a year for somebody and they spend one eighth of their time doing it, you're spending about $6,000 a year for them to do something. It kind of makes sense to buy them a $12 book, $15 book, so that they actually know how to attend a meeting how to run meetings, how to participate in them. So that's just a very, very basic example of if you train your people on doing what they do every day, you're going to get much more effectiveness out of them. Couple little bullets regarding effective or running effective meetings, I should say. One is no agenda, no attenda, I think is your quote. Mm, yep. Yeah. No agenda, no attenda just means that if I'm going to book someone for a meeting, I really need to find out um, or or let them know in advance what's the purpose of the the meeting, what are the three main outcomes we're going to cover in that meeting, and what are we covering during that meeting, in what order are we covering each of the points, and how many minutes will we spend on each agenda item. That allows the person to decide if their time is worthwhile coming to that meeting or if they should spend their time and really the company's money working on other projects. So I just allow everyone to say no agenda, no attenda. If I don't know what we're covering and in what order, why would I say yes to showing up? And wrapping up five minutes early. Yeah, I finish every phone call and every every meeting five minutes early. That way I can show up on time for the next thing. Right. So I can actually walk down the hall, talk to my assistant, get a cup of coffee, you know, grab some water, sit down and start exactly on time. What is it that Musk says about meetings again with respect to Tesla employees? Something 
to the effect of if it's if it's not serving you or if you're not getting any value from the meeting stand up and walk out yeah basically he said if you're in a shitty meeting stand up and leave and i actually um i've known elon since 1995 i was a reference for elon musk in his very first round of funding for his first company when he and his his brother kimball only had one employee at zip2 um so i've known him forever didn't know that right after yeah i hired kimball musk in 1993 to work for me at college pro painters I also hired his cousin, Peter Reeve, who built Solar City. They were both franchisees of mine. Um, so when Elon went public about a year ago and said, if you're in a shitty meeting, stand up and leave, I sent him a text and I said, you're not fixing the root problem. Fix meetings and they won't be in shitty meetings. You know, fix the meetings, they won't have to stand up and leave. But just to tell someone to stand up and leave means you're not solving the root problem. So actually, College Pro Painters, where I hired Kimball Musk, is written up in Elon's book. They mention it because... Um, they really didn't back Elon Musk for Zip2. They backed Kimball. Elon was unbackable because he hadn't done anything yet. Are there any lessons from that first experience at College Pro that you still practice today? Oh, all, all of them. I mean, College Pro Painters was really my real-world MBA, mm. right? Think about it. 21 years old, I had 12 full-time employees in my company. So there's not a lot of 21-year-olds that have real businesses with real employees and payroll. So I learned how to hire people, I learned how to interview, I learned how to train them, I learned productivity, I learned time management, um, I learned about sales. You know, I was doing, my last summer with College Pro, I painted, I think, 114 houses in, in 17 weeks. So I learned about production and efficiency, I learned about marketing, um, planning. Uh, you know, we only had 17 weeks to start and run and shut down our business, so we didn't have any time to waste. So I learned about productivity focused a huge 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 amounts of lessons from back there hmm. all of the, all of those lessons are really how i built you know 1-800-GOT-JUNK afterwards all right i want to come back to something that uh, i just quickly took a note on so in, in the leadership and management lessons and training you mentioned the inbox zero stuff so what framework do you use to, to teach inbox zero is it getting things done the david allen framework or is it something else no, it's not GDT. It's um, so I, I basically do what I call R&D, which is rip off and duplicate. So I take really good systems that some some of the best companies or best people are using, and I just use those. So back when I was building 1-800-GOT-JUNK, I had a mentor who was being groomed as the second in command at Starbucks. And uh, Greg Johnson was my mentor. We would meet every month for an hour and then every quarter for a full day in person. Mm-hmm. Um one of the days we were talking about email management, he was getting about 200 emails a day. And I asked him how he even possibly stayed on top of that. And he said he had inbox zero every single day. I'm like, okay, sensei, teach me. <laughs> like, how do you do this? And um, basically he followed the, the first rule was the four Ds. So treat your, your inbox, treat your email just like your physical mailbox, right? When the mailman comes, he doesn't ring a bell every time he puts a letter there. So don't have notifications set up on your email. You don't know, need to know that the next emails come in. You know, you don't have a big red number at your front door showing you how many letters you have in the mailbox. You can turn that off on the app too. You don't need to know that you've got emails sitting there. Um, and then what you do is you go to the door once and you take all the mail out of the mailbox at once. And as you're walking towards the kitchen, you grab all the junk mail. And as soon as you get to the kitchen, you throw it out, right? So that's delete, you delete anything that you don't need right away. And then you take stuff that you're going to delegate to someone else, right? For your kids or your spouse, you pull those letters aside. And then you might pull all the bills together and put those into a stack that you're going to deal with later. 
And then you're going to take anything that you're going to read right now and you'll open it up and read it and then throw it out. So the four D's of email management are delete, deal with, drag, or delegate. Drag means you're going to drag it to the end of day folder, the end of week folder, or the casual reading. So the end of day is you're going to deal with your email at four o'clock. The end of week means you'll look at that folder on Thursday or Friday, but not before then. The casual reading is stuff like your, you know how your magazines all just end up stacked in a pile? You might once a quarter go through them. That's the same as your casual reading stuff. The stuff just goes into those folders. And then I have a, another system where it's all my unsubscribes. I throw all my emails into an unsubscribe. And then once a month or once a quarter, my system goes in and unsubscribes all those emails for me. Coming back to conflict management, what, what stories can you share there for those that are having issues uh, in this regard? Sure. So the idea with conflict management is that conflict should be um, addressed right away, right? Race to the conflict that if you don't deal with conflict, it starts to build this passive aggressive nature inside of an organization, starts to make people frustrated with each other. It becomes you start harboring resentment. So the idea is to deal with conflict very, very quickly, but to respect the person that you're dealing with and to deal with it in a very direct way of what they did, not how they are. So as an example, years ago, um, one that comes to mind is the president of the company that I was working with. I told him that he was bringing in a consultant who I thought was kind of sleazy and a little bit shady, someone that I'd actually worked with for a year. Mm. And um, so I, I just said, you know, let's be careful with this guy. He can be a little bit sleazy, a little bit shady. Well, the president of the company told this, this consultant that that's how I felt. <laughs> and the consultant in the middle of doing a presentation to all the senior executives mentioned that he knew that. So I felt completely betrayed. And so I pulled the president aside. I said, look, I have a conflict with you. I need to address something that you did. I said, when you told, you know, this guy, Michael, about me, I felt like you betrayed my trust. I felt frustrated. I felt a little bit pissed off. I felt like you cared more about him than me. And um, it made me feel like I don't want to tell you anything anymore. And what I need from you is if I tell you something like that, I need you to keep it in confidence and or tell me that you don't want me to, to talk to you about how I'm really feeling. Mm -hmm. And I said, how do you feel about it? And he looked at me and he's like, wow, he said, you're, you're absolutely right. I'm really sorry. Like there was nothing he could do because I dealt with it using a system of when you, I feel, I need, how do you feel, right? When you did this, this is how it made me feel. This is how I need you to be in the future. How do you feel about it? This is going to be a, a weird and probably complicated question, but um, it's top of mind. So at, at what size of organization do you see conflict bubbling up to the point where the leadership team and or CEO has, hasn't got a clear idea and or picture of what conflict might be going on within the team? Pat Lencioni in the book, Five Dysfunctions of a Team, talked about the fear of conflict and the avoidance of um, the avoidance of conflict and, and the absence of trust is really being the, the two kind of most critical bases of, of building a highly functioning team. So the CEO's job in, in taking care of culture and the COO's job in building teams is to watch for that. It's to watch for passive aggressive comments, to watch for body language, to watch for, you know, backstabbing, to listen to the politics and in the one-on-one -on -one meetings to help their team you know, by unblocking, by removing obstacles, by, you know, helping them move forward. So it's just by asking them, how's it going? I also love using a system called 15-5. 
Um, it's actually a software platform that a friend of mine um, built out. And it's a, a report that takes each subordinate 15 minutes a week to fill out the report. And it takes the supervisor five minutes a week to read it. Um, and that 15-5 report often uncovers conflicts or potential conflicts that are brewing in the organization. And it gives you time to diffuse them before they become bigger issues. Interesting. Is that the actual name of the software, 15-5? Yeah, it's called 15-5. It's the number 15 and then the word 5 written out. So 15five.com. Okay, thanks for that. Um, let's move to stress, the topic of stress uh, as it relates to CEOs. So fr from an employee's perspective, I'll say that, uh, or from an outsider's perspective, the role of a founder or CEO looks very glamorous. But obviously, as you and I know well, um, there are some crazy stressors that, that folks don't understand or often miss. So can you talk a little bit about what you've observed and, and what actually goes on behind the scenes of a fast scaling company? Yeah, well, most most entrepreneurial CEOs are on the spectrum for bipolar disorder. Um, interestingly enough, and I'm not making jokes of that, but um, bipolar disorder has been nicknamed by the medical community as the CEO disease. <laughs> So most entrepreneurial CEOs are on the spectrum for bipolar, um, meaning that they're, they're either manic or hypomanic, ex exuding huge amounts of energy, which is why people follow them, right? Why it's why people will quit their jobs and come join a company. It allows them to raise money and start new ideas and, and go off into some new space. The stress and depression is simply them course correcting with sometimes adrenal burnout where they're just burned out. And the reality is they can't go at this manic speed for long without some sort of burnout, they need to decompress a little bit. And they often don't take the time to decompress because they're worried about what other people will think of them. A lot of times the CEOs become workaholics and they often identify, you know, with the brand. They've really created a brand that they've heavily, heavily put their identity in. So they sometimes lose sight of themselves. So I work with CEOs in my coaching program and, and even with the COOs and the CO Alliance to teach them how to get the CEOs to decompress and to slow down and to, you know, work a little bit less because more often than not, they're just working too much. What about the impact of personal finances or personal financial exposure? Things like second mortgages or, or things that are going on behind the scenes of a founder or CEO? Yeah, the CEO lives in a very scary, lonely world, right? They can't turn to their employees and ever say that they're scared. They can't turn to their employees and say they're worried about going bankrupt. They can't turn to their employees and say, you know, they're worried about not meeting payroll. Um, so sometimes they're taking on big risks. And, you know, often the CEOs are living in that very scary world. They often don't even have a friend network of peer peers or friends who can understand. Right? A lot of their friends are, are lawyers and doctors and professionals. They don't understand what it's like to mortgage your house and sign off on all the debt and to, you know, be really, really pushing hard to try to build something and you're terrified of automation or Amazon or, you know, a market change or a tax change. Um, so the CEOs often live in that little world. It's one of the reasons why, you know, mastermind groups and entrepreneurs investing and joining in these mastermind groups is powerful for them or why it's powerful for them to invest in coaching is it gives them an outlet and a safe place to talk so that they don't kind of go crazy in their own mind. So in, in this regard, something comes to mind, which is, uh, I'll take the YPO or EO framework for, for, as an example. Sure. So, so these organizations are often 
top line focused and they've got a top line qualification typically. It's almost like the entire culture of these organizations is growth, growth, growth. Whereas growth, as you and I know well, can often be a huge suck of cash. Uh, profits suffer and you know, founders end up in these scenarios where they've got so much personal financial exposure that they're they're seriously at risk, regardless of the size of, you know, last year's top line. Is this top line focus on growth really, really healthy? Or should we be getting back to business fundamentals and a profit first mindset? Yeah, yeah I, well, it depends. So I, I have always believed in a really well-rounded company where you focus first on employee satisfaction second on customer satisfaction, third on profitability, and fourth on revenue. And that builds the healthiest company. However, when you get into, you know, a grow at all cost model or a venture backed model, sometimes it is about revenue first. Um, You know, in the old days, back in the 70s and 80s, there was laws related to predatory pricing that the big companies couldn't go in and price so low that no one could compete. That's really what's happened now with a lot of the venture backed funding is companies are buying the market share. And so revenue, 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 grow at all costs, raise money, grow at all costs, raise money, isn't necessarily a bad thing if you're playing in that space. The problem is most companies are not playing in that space. 99% of companies out there are not venture backed and they're acting like they are. Mm-hmm. They're, they're doing this grow at all costs model, trying to swing at something, but the reality is they're never going to get there or they're not taking money off the table and they've got all their eggs in one basket. You know, they're really reinvesting in growth. I I talked to a guy the other day, he was a $20 million business, um, $20 million top line, and he'd never drawn more than a hundred thousand a year salary. And I said, you're crazy. Like you're crazy to be six years in still doing this whole build, build or bust, because what if you do bust, Mm -hmm. what if the market does change on you and you're not able to take money out, you know, versus pulling some money off the table every year, paying yourself as a real CEO and building your business around a real expense line. What do you think are the optics around a CEO of a $20 million company suddenly adjusting his draw from a hundred K a year to 200,000 or quarter million dollars a year if he's endeavoring to sell the business? Um, well, per- first off is I think if, if the optics are bad, the people who don't like the optics should leave. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, secondly, I think if you're building the business to sell, there's not a single group out there that would have a problem with the CEO being paid fairly because once they buy you, they're going to be replacing your salary with the general manager or a VP salary anyway. So they have a problem with paying that. So it's, you're really, it's, and it's also, it's your business, you know, you're the entrepreneur. So I think the entrepreneur should build the business the way they want to. They should rig the rules in their own favor. They should build a great company that takes care of their employees and the customers and if anybody doesn't like that, they should go work somewhere else. Yep. Um, the other part is that I think most employees, if they thought of it as a true meritocracy, would probably pay the senior executive team a lot more than they're getting paid mm. in most companies. You know, I think once you get to the real fortune kind of 100s, that's where you're seeing a lot of the manipulation happening. Mm-hmm. Um, speaking of, of salaries and, and titles, let's, let's move to this topic of title inflation which is a term that I think you may have coined. So, so I'll let you explain it. Yeah, so the deal with, with title inflation is this. Um, 20 years ago, 
you know, back, if you think prior to the, the launch of the first dot com area in 98, 99, prior to that, to have a C-level title, to be a chief marketing officer, a chief technology officer, a chief financial officer, a chief operating officer, to really have a true C-level title, you had to be a major player at a major company. Likewise, to get to get stock or to get equity in a company prior to 98, you had to go buy it on the stock market. But what happened was back around 97, 98, companies started giving away equity in lieu of compensation. And they started giving away bigger titles as a way to attract people into a role. Hmm. So they started to give non-monetary compensation as a way to attract people into a role. When the market crashed in March of 2000, right, when the first stock market crash happened through March 2000 through to the middle of 2001, companies then had to pay you a salary as well because most people were like, I don't just want stock. You don't even, like, there's no way we're going to turn this whole economy around. So employees started getting paid, but they also kept getting stock and they kept getting these titles. So what happened was through 2000 through kind of 2015 or even current, we really had title inflation. It gets to the point now where you walk into a 20 person company and they've got a seven people with C levels and four VPs. I'm like, come on, <laughs> you're a $2 million company. You don't have a chief financial officer. At best, you have a controller. Um, you know, you don't have a chief marketing officer. At best, you've got a director of marketing. So you think about every vertical that we run in a company. Let's say we've got finance. It could be a controller or a director of finance or a VP of finance or a CFO. You know, in marketing, it could be a, a marketing manager or a director of marketing or a VP of marketing or a CMO. You know, in operations, it could be a general manager or a director of mar or director of operations or a VP of operations or executive VP or a COO. And the one that really got me laughing recently was chief revenue officer. Mm. The reason it got me laughing was I figured out where it came from. Chief revenue officer was the head of sales who wanted to have a seat at the C-level table. And they'd always been called vice president or VP of sales. And they're like, I want a C-level title too. Well, they couldn't call it chief sales officer. It sounded stupid. So they called it chief revenue officer. Basically, it was a made up title. So the head of that one final vertical could sit at the C-level table. So that's where I see what's happened with title inflation is we used to give it out as a way to use non-monetary compensation or non-monetary you know, incentives to join. It then became table stakes. What happens though is now you have junior people with big titles that have expectations that their job is different or that they should get paid a lot more. So you know, you've got a, let's say a director of marketing that really should be making 100,000 a year you give them a chief marketing officer title and all of a sudden they think they should be making 200. No, if you were really a true chief marketing officer at a bigger brand, you might be getting 200, but a director of marketing really gets 90 to 120, you know, and a marketing manager probably gets 70 to 80. So there's a, there's a, there's a danger in giving away these big titles as well. How would someone go about discovering what their actual market value is and by association, what their real title should be? That's the way a company should be putting titles on roles is to first list out what are all the things the person's going to be doing. Mm -hmm. And based on the things that they're going to be doing, what might that title be and what might that person then normally get paid? So you should be paying someone based on what they're doing, not based on a title you give them. Yep. That makes sense. How would someone discover what their unique ability is, both as an employee and or as a leader? Let's pretend that someone followed you around with a video camera for a month and they videoed you doing your job. At the end of the month, you 
play the video back and you you write down everything you see yourself doing. Right? You open emails, you reply to emails, you book meetings, you attend meetings, you book your flights, you fly to, to speaking events, you do a speaking event, you prep your keynote slides, whatever. You make a list of all the things you do. And then column, I, do, I use a spreadsheet, so I do column A, I make a list of all the things I do, and in column B, I write down a letter one of four letters, either I for incompetent, C for competent, E for excellent, U for unique ability. So incomp incompetent just means you suck at it. Competent means you're okay at it. Excellent means you're really, really good at it, but you don't necessarily love doing it. Unique ability is the stuff you love to do and you're really, really good at. I, I always say that I would do it for free except my kids have to eat. Right? It's the stuff that I'm really, really good at. I get energized off of. People get energized watching me do it. Right? That, that tends to be unique ability. What you're trying to do then is get everything off your plate that you're either incompetent or competent with and finally get that down to what you are even just excellent unique ability. So when you're left with just excellent unique ability, the key is how do you get the stuff off your plate that you're excellent at so that, so that you're left with that just unique ability zone. And for you, I would imagine it's coaching, it's speaking. Is there anything else? Um, for me, it would be coaching and speaking and dealing with the media. Those would be the three things that I'm really, really good at. I get energized from. Mm -hmm. uh, I love doing. Um, you know, the others, there's a lot of stuff that I'm good at, but I don't necessarily get energized from. Speaking of dealing with the media, um, you're a master of generating free PR. What are some tactics that people can use right away if they're interested in free PR? One of the ways is to recognize that every day, every writer, every journalist, every podcaster, every blogger sits down at their desk and thinks, what the heck am I going to cover today? Right? What am I going to write about? So your job is to pick up the phone and call them and say, hey, do you have two minutes? I think I have a good story for you. And they'll often say yes, because they're looking for something to cover give them a two minute pitch and then say, what do you think? Your job is to help them uh, by giving them a new story, by giving them a new angle. The next thing to remember with PR is that just because you get covered in the media doesn't mean it's going to drive a path to your door, right? Your job is to do what we call use the digital trifecta where you land media coverage, you put it on your social media platforms like Facebook and LinkedIn and Twitter, et cetera. And then you drive ad traffic to that post so that people see the article a lot more than they would normally see it organically. Let me ask you about conferences, which I know you attend many of them, probably both as an attendee, obviously, and a speaker on the other side. But recently you attended TED Women 2019. So, yeah. so two questions on this. One, obviously, what, why did you go? And two, I think more importantly, what, what were some of the key takeaways that were perhaps not known to you going in? Well, you've done your homework. Yeah, I attended TED Women last week. Um, so you've definitely been doing your homework. I was the second TED Women that I've attended. The first one I went to four years ago with my ex-wife. Uh, and this time I went with my girlfriend. I would never go to TED Women as a single male. Um, I think you're just a little bit invading your spa their space. But TED Women had uh, around 1,100 attendees. 50 of us were men, uh, so about 1,050 women. Um, so you have to be approved and accepted to attend. I wanted to be inside the female narrative for three days to listen to the issues and the ideas and the concepts and the thoughts that women have on all issues and also on um, technology, entertainment and design. So to be involved in 
listening to what they think is important, but also listening to their perspective. I think often when you get a group of people together, male and female, women tend to speak last. They tend to keep the opinions to themselves. They don't get as confrontational or edgy. Um, men tend to dominate. So you often don't hear the female narrative on a lot of issues as much as you could. And they think and speak differently when it's just them around. So it was a real privilege just to be able to sit in the room and, and listen to it and um, just be around it. What were some eye-opening speaking topics, if, if you can recall? One of the topics that got to me was um, a president from Africa. I can't remember the country that she was from. She was the first female president of a an african country um there's 50 countries over there i can't for the life of me can't remember which one it was off the top of my head but her thoughts around building out her cabinet and building out leadership were really interesting she really wanted to build out a female cabinet a female kind of um house supporting her and she got to appoint all the people like you do when you're president or prime minister of a country you can appoint a lot of your head people she realized that she couldn't just appoint everybody as women, that, that she wouldn't be able to get the support of government or of the, um, the political community. What she decided to do then was to appoint key positions, very, very key strategic positions. She appointed uh, female leaders there. Um, and she was looking for, you know, not just diversity, but she was looking for inclusiveness and she was looking for empathy and she was looking for integrity and she was looking for um, people that would care more than just their ego. And she found that by putting women into those roles very strategically, it had a very big butterfly effect or ripple effect across the whole government. I thought that was really interesting. Okay. So we have a few minutes left. I want to ask you about this thing we hit on at the very beginning, which will probably be edited out, but, but I'll ask you about it now. You've got a son that's going off to college, uh, mm -hmm. university, as we say in Canada. How do you think about the college and or university format? in the next 10 years of our lifetime as we turn the decade into 2020? Well, I think, I think the university and post-secondary education system is uh, at risk and will collapse, um, maybe not in the next 10 years, but certainly in the next 20. Um, I think the high school system is a disaster, as is our, our elementary education, but I don't think those will drastically change, unfortunately, that quickly. Um, the reason I think that the university post-secondary is at, at risk is that companies are starting to turn against um, that as a necessity, and they're also starting to bias against a lot of post-secondary as even necessary. You know, a lot of the kids who are just going and getting an arts degree, a bachelor degree, you know, with some general background, it would be much better for those kids to go and travel for a year, go and apprentice for a couple different companies, um, go and actually get some real-world experience and just go and party and have fun and have sex as much as you want with kids your own age when you're working, but not necessarily come out with this extraordinary amount of debt. The difference between the Canadian system and the American system is so obvious in intuition. You know, I think the Canadian tuition is about $5,000 a year, not, you know, so a kid after four years of university has got, you know, $20,000 of university debt uh, total. You know, that's not hard to get out of, but even that isn't necessary because they could actually go and get a job and still gain lots of experience and um, still learn theory. There's a lot more information available online, you know, which didn't exist 20 years ago. You know, when I was at university, no one on my floor in residence had a computer. Um, it was the year after I graduated, people started getting computers in university. So I typed my essays on a lot on a, on a, uh, a typewriter. 
uh, you had to go to the library to take out a book. And if somebody already was, was reading the book, you had to go get a different book. You know, we didn't have access to the information. So the necessity of memorizing things and being radically self-reliant and, you know, figuring it all out and um, doing it all on your own doesn't exist anymore. It's not necessary. Now it's about collaborating and, and working together as a team and how fast can you find information and synthesize information and leverage technology. So I, I think the necessity of, of that style of education is dissipating very quickly. Mm-hmm. Well, average Canadian, oh. sorry, I just looked this up. Average According to Statistics Canada, which is fairly reliable, um, average yeah. Canadian university graduate finishes school with more than $26,000 in student debt. So you're pretty close. So COOalliance.com for those that want to learn more about the largest network uh, for the second in command. Where else can they connect with you? Yeah, if they, well, if they want any of my books, the um, all five of my books are on Amazon, Audible, and iTunes. So I'd recommend they go there to check out uh all the books. And then if they just want any more information, my speaking videos that they can download and watch, it's all at CameronHerald.com. And that's H-E-R-O-L-D.com. And they can follow your videos on LinkedIn, which I highly recommend. They're always interesting and insightful. Man, this was great. Thanks for doing this again. I really appreciate it. Send me the link when this goes live. I'd love to be able to share this one. Okay. Thanks, Cameron. Take care. E2 is brought to listeners in part by Scriberbase. Visit Scriberbase.com for more info. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. If you like E2, you can subscribe to the podcast wherever you consume your audio. Leave us a review. Even become an exclusive supporter of the show. Visit glow.fm slash E2 to do so. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Have you ever wondered what actually happens in Congress every day? Stay informed on Capitol Hill's daily happenings with a concise, factual summary of the Senate and House of Representatives activities from the previous session, free from bias, on the Congressional Record Daily Digest podcast. Subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and discover the process from the heart of U.S. politics. The Congressional Record Daily Digest, an electric cast production. Welcome to Sarah Talk Solutions. Ladies and gentlemen, you've tuned into a bit of a different type of show. I'm Sarah B and I'm your host. You can find me on my IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. I talk about amazing, relevant conversations and topics and what functions that goes on in this magical, wonderful, wonderful city of the City of Angels. My IG, which is Aussie underscore Sarah underscore LA. Electric Air.